0: Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of The Mem Podcast. My name is Demi Wright and this week we have Dr. Darren Reed who's a respiratory registrar in the East Midlands. Today he's going to talk to us about asthma in the clinic setting. Hi Darren, thanks for joining us. Can you tell me about asthma and how do we actually go about making that diagnosis?
1: Of course. So this sometimes works a little backwards actually when we're in an asthma setting because a lot of the time these patients have been diagnosed in primary care and when they're referred it's typically because they've not responded to treatments and the BTS stepwise approach that is normally done very well in primary care. There's a second cohort that come in following an emergency admission and this could be a new diagnosis of asthma that we've made while they were in hospital and then we're just following them up because it's been severe enough to bring them to hospital. So we tend to break this down in a number of ways. So reviewing the initial diagnosis, trying to gather evidence to support a diagnosis of asthma, and sometimes that can be quite tricky. A lot of the time these patients were diagnosed in childhood, have then either grown out of it or not, and then have a recurrence of symptoms. And so going back to those sort of primary principles, you're looking for are they dominantly wheezy and tight chested? Have they got a diurnal variation in symptoms? Is that documented in the way of peak flows and have they had any response to treatment? So peak flow monitoring is something that is very helpful and easy to do, but unfortunately is fairly poorly done. And what we're looking for there is sort of a 20% fluctuation in readings when well, and we're expecting them to be worse over sort of the nighttime period first thing in the morning with the natural trough in steroid levels. Going forwards from there, we've got an uncontrolled asthmatic patient Then, and certainly for diagnostic uncertainty, getting spirometry in that lab is helpful because so if they've got an obstructive pattern, then that is very for airflow obstruction. If you're then seeing the diurnal variation, that is fairly diagnostic of asthma, and therefore we can start working up the BTS approach, and helpful for steroids with increasing strength. It gets more difficult when they don't necessarily follow that pattern. And spirometry can be normal because the very nature of an intermittent bronchospasm, airway narrowing, it could have a period where they've got normal spirometry but then become symptomatic after that. So we use other measures of airway inflammation, such as a pheno, So that's a fraction of expired nitric oxide. And the reading over 40 parts per billion is representative of airway inflammation. Unfortunately that's not specific and it can come from the upper airway and the nose and not just the lower airway. If you've got an indeterminate number which is sort of 25 to 39 then be taken in conjunction with other evidence to try to support diagnosis. Further tests that we can do, bronchodilation reversibility testing, so pre and post nebulizer doing spirometry and seeing if there's a significant increase in FEV1, looking for a 12% improvement or 200 mils improvement. And conversely to that, in patients that everything has been normal up until this point, we might use a provocation test, so a PC20, where you're getting someone to inhale something that is going to provoke the airways to try to bronchoconstrict. And you increase concentration of that gradually, intermittently doing a ball symptom score and also spirometry, looking for a drop in FEV1. And if you can reach 8 milligrams and you haven't had worsening of your spirometry or worsening symptoms, then it's essentially a negative study showing that you don't airway hyperreactivity. hyperactivity. Finally, we test with blood tests looking for IgE and the Xenophil counts, looking for if the patient has any serum allergens. We also use skin pricks for this, but it's that combination and battery of tests that we then essentially try to categorise whether they do or don't have asthma.
0: Okay. So sounding very much like asthma, yes, it's a clinical diagnosis that is supported by one or a multitude of these tests. So am I right in saying that there is no one diagnostic test for asthma?
1: Very much so.
0: Okay. So start on peak flows, see if there's any variability, and then work our way to the protocol as per BTS. Yes. So you did mention the management of asthma according to the BTS guidelines. Can you just walk us through what those steps are?
1: Yeah. So in patients where you have a presumed or confirmed diagnosis of asthma, the treatment is with inhaled corticosteroids. So a low-dose inhaled corticosteroids, such as clenil or Cuva, with PRN use of Desma Subutamol or if there are any breakthrough sort of breakthrough bronchospasm attack. Essentially, we then work up, if that doesn't control symptoms, we'll get a moderate dose of corticosteroid. Beyond that, we'll then be looking to change your inhaled steroid inhaler to a LABA ICS, so that's a combination inhaler. It's worth noting here, we should never be describing these separately. The LABA ICS needs to be a combination inhaler because LABAs in isolation increase mortality and asthma patients. The role of the lab is sort of twofold. One, depending on the brand used, but a lot of them can be used as the reliever. And here we can move into a mart therapy, maintenance and reliever therapy, which allows use of the inhaler for breaking these bronchospasms, improving symptoms, but also that gets extra dose of inhaled steroid. And the frequent problem is that patients will not be using their ICS because they don't see immediate benefit whereas they see the benefit from their salbutamol and will therefore rely on that. So if we remove the salbutamol just giving that single inhaler it ensures they're getting in if that's not working, we can then move on to add in So it's a once-day tablet that's particularly effective in exercise-induced symptoms. And then the final step of the ladder is adding in oral-caused steroids, which is really sort of steps four and five of the BTS uh, ladder, really the point that commonly we see referrals. And that can be either because they've got very severe asthma that isn't being controlled by the therapies, or this might not actually be asthma and that's why they're not responding. That's really what secondary care clinics are looking into. Okay.
0: So is it right we're no longer advising the short acting beta acne as the first step in asthma treatment?
1: That is tricky because there's conflicting advice between the NICE and the BTS guidance on this. Commonly, you'll see patients wean themselves off their inhaler cookers that are particularly as they outgrow their asthma, so of quotation marks, and then they just keep the blue inhaler for when they feel they need it, which is just in their pocket or their handbag. This is something that I find primary care probably deal with a lot more frequently because we will often discharge patients if they've got that degree of good control back to primary care.
0: Okay. So we talked about the straightforward asthma patient and how we make that diagnosis, but what about patients that come in that are wheezy and they have a smoking history? It gets a bit more complicated there as to, is it asthma? Is it COPD? What can you say to advise us on which way to go versus the other? So
1: much like I was alluding to earlier, It comes down to trying to gather evidence pro and against. So certainly if the patient has historically had a diagnosis of asthma that they've then worsened in their fourth or fifth decades along with their smoking history, then that from a story alone sounds more like an asthmatic that is developing more fixed airflow obstruction because of COPD. And to a degree, it's a little academic because it's more based on which phenotype is predominant. If it's still the azinophilic reversible airflow obstruction, which would be proven with a pre- and post dilation barometry, then you would treat it more along asthma line, bearing in mind they might have a degree of reduction in that reversibility due to the COPD component. If you've got a new patient and they're not sure when it all began, then you are again looking for the, sort of the evidence for and against. So you might add in a CT scan to look for the degree of how much emphysema there is. In your spirometry, you might get a full pulmonary function tests where you're looking then for gas transfers, which might be impaired in emphysema. But you'd still be going down the lines of looking for reversibility, looking for a xenophilia. But to a large degree, treatment is fairly similar across the two groups in the early stages. However, it does diverge somewhat when you get to more severe airflow obstructions. Because in mathematics, for example, we've had fairly promising results from the biologic therapies that come off.
0: Okay. Those are some of the new ones that you said. Can you tell us a bit about those new biologic therapies and which yeah. ones and when are they used?
1: So the initial one was omelizumab. Goes by the brand name Zolaire. so that is used for atopic patients with allergic asthma. It has a few criteria for its use. So essentially, in the last 12 months, you will need to have been in hospital with your asthma or needed oral corticosteroids for your asthma due to exacerbation. You would need an FEV1 post bronchodilation of less than 80%, and you need to have an elevated total IgE. However, it is also based on your weight, so you need to be within a fine threshold for that. So it's a little complicated, you need to basically looking up. But that would qualify you for an IgE-based therapy. And then there's nephalizumab, which is a sort of pathway. So you're needing two or more exacerbations, either in hospital or oral steroids. Uh, you need to have a peripheral xenophilia of 0.3 or greater. And not controlled on conventional
0: therapy. Asthma is one of those things that it takes time for patients to get on top of and get good control of their treatment. What do you advise patients at home in order to manage their asthma prior to coming into hospital?
1: So, a lot of what we do in clinic is actually going back to basics and it's going through inhaler techniques with patients. It's asking in a non-judgmental way when and how frequently they're forgetting their inhalers because it's a fairly common problem. Particularly if when you're well controlled, you say, oh, I clearly don't need these because I have no symptoms. So then you'll back off using their <laughs> inhalers, which propagates as worse than the control. So inhaler technique concordance with inhalers, Using spacers for any aerosol-based inhaler. they are sort of the main points. Then you've got the other factors. So if someone is smoking, if anyone's got any known aeroallergens, so sort of cats, dogs, grass, dust, mould in the house. These are all the things we test for in the skin prick or the blood tests. But if you can reduce the exposure to it, you're going to reduce airway inflammation and improve symptoms. Things to also be trying to identify is whether they're having these nocturnal symptoms or exertional symptoms. That's a of poor control. And ideally, every patient with asthma should have none of them. They shouldn't be needing oral steroids. They shouldn't be coming to hospital. They should be able to sleep through the night. And they should be able to exercise on demand without needing to stop. Obviously there's a group of patients that we always look out for in the sort of severe group that it could be that they've never been controlled on their normal stepwise approach because they actually have one of the rarer conditions or they've got fairly mild asthma but they've got something exacerbating that. Right. So the sort of two groups of the, of the severe ones are the people with allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, ABPA. People with what used to be called Churg-Strauss, so EGPA, which is a vasculitis condition that initially presents with an asthma sort of picture, but then in the sort of fourth or fifth decade start developing a more localized vasculitic picture and worse than Xenophilia, and that can progress to a life-threatening vasculitis. Looking for salicylate sensitivity, so that's Sampter's triad, so nasal polyposis, salicylate sensitivity, and that can include include things like sulfites and food additives, and then asthma. And then a big one that people need to be thinking about is occupational asthma, where you've got that variation when they're going to the workplace and for a few days afterwards, and that should always be managed in secondary care. So that's the more sort of severe groups, and then you've got the milder groups with other conditions worsening. And this is a large part of asthma clinics are differentiating these two groups. Because if we can address the provoking factor of the asthma, then it's it relatively easier to control. So things that can do that are things like reflux, so castrosoftal or laryngopharyngeal reflux irritate the upper airway, make people more prone to airway hyperreactivity. Inducible laryngeal obstruction or vocal cord dysfunction, so that, again, can be exacerbated by reflux, can be exacerbated by anxiety, dysfunctional breathing, which makes someone sound wheezy and tight, but isn't going to respond to steroids or bronchodilators. Because of the association between obesity and reflux, if we're giving lots of oral steroids for patients, uh, obesity-induced reflux, we're just worsening a vicious cycle. Other things, smoking, allergens is discussed, medication, they can all worsen the section of their asthma control where it's not actually asthma, that's driven it.
0: Okay. Lastly, do you give all asthma patients rescue packs of oral steroids?
1: So, again, that comes down to how severe they are, the number of vaccinations. Each patient should have their own individualised asthma care plan, which is giving them threshold triggers for their peak flows and symptoms and what to do. So, commonly, at this peak flow, take your rescue pack of steroids. If you fall below that to this, then call 999 and go to hospital. If you're known to an asthma nurse specialist, particularly patients in the difficult asthma clinic will be, then they might have a threshold in there to call for advice. Getting treatment in early is important, and that's one of the arguments against giving these patients home nebulizers because it delays presentation, so they're more likely to present in a life-threatening or near-fatal exacerbation rather than in their moderate or acute severe groups.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Reed. That's been extremely helpful. My pleasure. See you next time.